And now we live, I think, in one of the most exciting times to be alive because the pandemic has helped people to question gender, especially gender outside of your Zoom square, being forced to relate and to reassess and to do our best to find comfort and knowing that the boxes may not be our source of comfort as much as we thought. When kids come out as trans, there's often, but not always, a progression to it. And we've talked about this before. It's not at all uncommon for kids, particularly adolescents, to start with coming out as gay and then progressing into non-binary identity and then to a re-binary identity. But not everyone takes that route. A lot of kids and adults discover the concept of non-binary or something similar and go, yes, this is me, finally. There are so many labels in the gender universe, and because it is continuously evolving, it makes continuous learners out of all of us. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham. By now, if you've been listening to the more recent episodes, you've probably connected the dots that I am non-binary. I'm very cis-passing, and I use that to my advantage a lot of the time. I'm actually feeling pretty vulnerable telling you this, because I'm afraid that knowing that I'm non-binary might mean, for some of you, that I somehow lose value in the things I say about gender. I've experienced this with families over the years, and I've experienced it with my own family. I'd give my dad something to read about transness, and he would say, well, it was a good book or a good article, but then I learned that the guy who wrote it is trans, so he has a vested interest in persuading me, so I just don't know if I can believe him. This is one of those backwards things my dad has said to me. There's a lot of backwards things my dad has said to me, just to be clear, but this one really went above and beyond for me. It's also something that I hear a lot from people with privilege when they're hearing firsthand stories or accounts from marginalized individuals. I can only believe the things that come from people that look like me. My hope is that as people hear more gender journey stories like my own, and stories like today's guests, that the sentiment will become less and less common, that an awareness will be built, and that more and more people will feel confident going on a journey of gender exploration. I didn't realize I was non-binary until I was an adult. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I had no understanding of gender beyond the binary. I spent so much of my childhood and adolescence feeling like I didn't fit in. I was never comfortable in my clothes, and I got constant comments from peers and adults that indicated that I was failing at all the girl things. Whenever I'd see pictures of myself where I knew I had followed all of the instruction manuals on how to girl, and I felt like I was actually nailing my girl costume, my mom would say something to me like, that doesn't even look like you. And she was right. It didn't. It wasn't until I really learned about gender expansiveness and had done the work to stop trying to fit in, and I really belonged to myself. That's when I was finally able to see on the outside what I knew on the inside. I have so much to say about this conversation today. I'm so excited about it. It left me flying high for days and days. It's already changed lives, and you haven't even heard it yet. Today's campfire conversation is with Jeffrey Marsh. 
Jeffrey is a viral TikTok and Instagram star, non-binary activist, and LGBTQ keynote speaker. Jeffrey was the first non-binary public figure to appear on national television, being interviewed on Newsmax in 2016, and Jeffrey was the first celebrity activist to use they-them pronouns. Jeffrey's number one bestseller, How to Be You, was the first non-binary memoir. And Jeffrey is the first non-binary author to sign a book deal with any big five publisher worldwide for Penguin Random House. Jeffrey's TikToks and compassionate short-form videos have over one billion views. If you've never heard of them, you're in for a real treat. Their videos are so powerful and important, and they make for great reflective prompts as well. Enjoy. The first time I ever saw a video of you. Oh God, like, yes. 12 someone years sent, ago. Someone sent it I to me. I was in middle school. You were in middle school. Uh-huh. You were uh, <laughs> singing in some performance. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, uh, a mom sent it to me. Um, mm. And she sent me this video. And it was of you saying, like, hey, I'm an adult. And I'm okay. And I live this, ha- like, perfectly happy life. I'm sure you know the video I'm talking about. <laughs> And I hope I didn't say perfectly happy. Well, but not yes. perfectly, yes. But you know, <laughs> I'm an adult and I survived. That's yeah. that's the one. <laughs> and we and she was like, I just need you to know that I knew this, but also, and she's a very affirming, supportive parent. Um, she was, I knew this, but also I still needed to hear it. She was like, Can you just please just send this to everyone you know? And I was like, not uh I no, uh that's weird. Um <laughs> But uh, little by little, but I did start to give it to kids in like our sessions because I regularly give TikToks to kids. Then all of a sudden, it was like all these videos started coming back to me from my kids of you talking about like your experiences and like giving them permission to feel things. It had a profound influence on even just like our little community here. And I know that that's just a very small snippet. Like you are everywhere on the internet. Um, it seems. Well, okay. Let's go back one step because okay. a very small snippet, sure, but an ultra important one. Yeah. The reason, frankly, that I'm doing everything that I do actually is what you just described. And in case it wasn't obvious to everybody in the world, I, I always assume it is, but you know, I'm trying to heal my childhood too. Yeah. I'm trying to travel back in that time machine and tell little Jeffrey, it's okay. <laughs> you get to be yourself. You get to you get to love the things you love. And I, I'm trying to heal those wounds through helping others heal. Yeah. And we all get, hopefully, you know, I'm glad other people get something out of it. <laughs> I know I get something out of it too. You know, I'm the luckiest person alive because of that. Isn't that the truth? To have the privilege of being able to do the healing work is so important and powerful. And the fact that your healing work ripples out is so beautiful. I get to hear from people. I know you were just about to transition to the next question. Hold that thought, please. Mm -hmm. I hear from people, because I'm popular, on a massive scale. (laughs) um, About how how they thought they were the only one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just LGBTQ, but just like childhood trauma, feeling like you're a burden, not, mm-hmm. not, you know, not wanting to reveal you have needs, you know, these sort of general principles that I was carrying all by myself. And then I started to make videos about them and got literally hundreds of thousands of people sliding into the DMs <laughs> to say, you know, that's me too. Yeah. And that's just incredibly affirming to know that I'm not carrying all this by myself. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. It's that common humanity piece, right? That awareness of my struggle is everyone's struggle in some way or another. And I'm a therapist. And there's so many times that even I will be like, I should have this figured out. I understand why I'm having a hard time. Like, or someone will say to me (laughs) a thing that that I've said a thousand times. And I'm like, God, dang it. Uh, that lesson is one I need to learn myself, right? Because it's different when it's in your head versus when it's in your heart. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And like head knowledge is different than heart knowledge. Yeah, 100%. And I do what I do. I don't know if this is part of your practice as a therapist, but uh, I do what I do partly to hold myself accountable, to stay at that sort of cutting edge of self-kindness. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like I I knew that I was programmed from a very young age to to um how do I put it delicately to be outward focused to mm-hmm. the extent that I would care for people that need me. And I think that's actually a good thing. When I was a kid, there was no way for me to know that that would come at the expense of taking care of the parts of me that need me. Mm-hmm. And so things were out of balance for many years in my life. But now that they're in balance and I love myself, I'm actually using my impulse to care so much about the world and other people to hold myself accountable to care about myself too. Yeah. I'm sure you have those moments, I know I do, where you just sort of like run, at least for me, I sort of like end up like, like a roadrunner, a coyote moment where I'm like face first into a wall of like, oh, I didn't know that was there. Um, Or Mm -hmm. I forgot that was there. Uh, And then having to sort of sit with it and like do my own work. And as I'm doing my own work, just I, for me, it's a, a constant reminder of like, yeah, it's a lifelong process. Right. There is no finish line. And every day I get up and I decide that, that this is what I'm going to do. That is what I sit every day and encourage other people to do. I can't do that. I can't not do that if I'm going to encourage other people to do that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You don't have any you don't have a leg to stand on. You don't have any authority if you <laughs> No. if you're no. just like spouting Instagram platitudes, you know, without any having done the work yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. I think about my partner a lot. Because he's my partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe all of that was obvious. But I, th- <laughs> but I think about him in a particular way because he is unconditionally unconditionally loving to me. And he's wonderful. And you know, I'm so grateful for him. And there never has been a time where I wished it was over. So many folks with like self-love, it's like, oh, gosh, mm, what's the next step? Yeah. After I love myself. <laughs> yeah. Can we just can we just can we just get to the end here, you know? And I never do that with an outward person that I love. 
it's never like gosh time's ticking here let's get over this you know Mm -hmm. it's like I hope I get to do this you know if I'm lucky I get to do this for the rest of my life yes and I hope I get to learn more about how to love myself for the rest of my life yeah I mean without being too um zen Mm -hmm. you know I lived I lived at a monastery you know without being too zen about it I I hope it extends to the moment of death yeah I don't know what's after death but I hope when I you know when the time comes for me that I'm loving to myself and still doing it in that moment. Yeah. I love that. I think that that's such a beautiful way of phrasing or helping people understand, right? We talk about self-love, we talk about self-kindness and the way that we talk about self-kindness often is like, how would you talk to, like, do you talk to yourself the way that you talk to someone you love? And I actually had never really thought about it until literally just now when you said it, this idea of, I don't want these relationships to end. I don't want the love that I experience with certain parts of my family and my partner and my kids to ever end. Also, there's me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And that relationship with myself is like a big one. And, And I think I'm pretty healthy about it. You know? So, like, that like, oh, I still have like plenty of room to grow here. That's awesome. You talk so eloquently. I mean, you said it so beautifully about running into the wall. And another wall people run into is self-care is selfish. Mm-hmm. You know, we were taught, I, I'll speak for myself. I was taught to focus so much outward um, that it was actually dangerous to even focus inward. Yeah. Even to just like, hey, find out what's going on in there. You know, not even to be like saying nice things to myself in my head. (laughs) Like not even that, which is like the all, for some reason, the ultimate danger zone, right? Right. But even to just take a look, like what, you know, was the thing I was taught about myself? Is that true? Is that true? You know, that even feels dangerous. Yeah. So anybody that does this kind of work, and I would say you could verify this for me, but anybody who goes to the camp is just brave beyond. 100%. Yeah. They've, 100%. they've already taken that step that is maybe the most brave thing we can do in our lives. Yeah, 100%. I was thinking about it, you know, like in my childhood, right? I was raised super Christian. My dad, like every man in my family is a minister, <laughs> every single one. Um, and I'm sorry, say that again. I need every, to repeat on that. Every single man in my family is a minister. Any women or my non-binary sister, people? <laughs> my, my sister was um, a missionary and is is an ordained with the, uh, a church. Um, then there's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm non-binary. And like my family's never always been like, eh, okay, you know, here you, uh, it's fine. But like, I, I didn't get to really even name that until I was an adult. But I remember growing up and being taught joy and the acronym as an acronym is as in the order of your priorities, Jesus, others, yourself. That doesn't spark joy. It does not spark joy. Right. It does not spark joy for me either, but it took a really long time for me to sort of even be able to like go from, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. And like, that's how you're good. 
to what? <laughs> right? Like just even like that doesn't even make what? Uh, and then start to really question everything. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fun to question everything. Isn't I it? think so. Yeah. Wouldn't you say, um, wouldn't you say that what you do is a form of ministry? My dad would too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say that about myself too. Mm-hmm. So my mom is a pastor and I, I grew up in a very religious context too. Uh-huh. And um, I kind, it took me a while to realize it, but I kind of just followed in her footsteps. Mm-hmm. But in an attempt to do it without the trauma, without the judgment, without the exclusion. Yeah. And to, to sort of call people to a higher spiritual kind of invitation kind of space without it having to be the predominant message I got, which was you have to change everything about yourself before Jesus will not find you disgusting. Yeah. You know, something like that. Something like, <laughs> it's like the Cliff Notes version. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I'm, I'm just having this like moment of like, oh my gosh, we're cut from the same cloth uh, in that like spiritual up- or that religious upbringing um, turned spiritual. Um, and I always tell people mm-hmm. now when they're like, well, are you still a Christian? I'm like, love is my religion. Like, that's what I'm about. If you want to get down to it, I'm about loving people and about sharing love and helping people love themselves. Yeah. And, you know, it's part of the reason why I don't sort of automatically assume Christians are coming from a bad place. Yeah. You know, sometimes uh, LGBTQ folks were so traumatized and so, you know, outcast by Mm -hmm. our religious Christian upbringing, Mm -hmm. you know, that we can carry that bitterness with us for the rest of our lives. But, you know, as ironic as it sounds, I happen to know there are Christians who are as devoted to love as I am. Yeah. And find it lovely to talk about the things we have in common, Mm -hmm. the things that bring us together. Mm-hmm. the things we we all find are important. Yeah. And around here, I live in the Pacific Northwest, which is notoriously liberal, except for that it's not, right? Like there's just pockets of very dense populations that are liberal. And for the most part, like I live in a pretty conservative community and the vast majority of the families I work with are Christian families. And there's this concept of their kid coming out becoming a very scary thing for them and what it means for their faith. And so we do a lot of spiritual work in the work that we do with kids and with families around how do you hold space for your faith and also uh, be completely affirming and loving of your child. Um, (laughs) And why do those things conflict? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at, you know, no, it's a uh, religious it. trauma. But, you know, uh, it, it seems really ironic because uh, as far as I can tell, everything I've ever learned or seen or, you know, known about Jesus seemed like a pretty loving kind of cool person <laughs> who would like be into people being themselves, you know. Yeah. And that just gets so twisted by some corners, uh, not even corners, unfortunately, a a lot of denominations and a lot of congregations. And I just want to tell a little tiny story in case it's helpful for for specifically Christian folks who are listening to this podcast. My parents thought they were bad Christians because I was LGBTQ. Mm. 
There was some sort of like fear of being judged by other Christians if your kid turns out to be rainbow delightful. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is hyphenated. Rainbow delightful. You know, if your kid turns out to be LGBTQ, it's your fault. God hates you for you did a thing. allowing it to happen, right? Or something. Yeah, that's the opposite of true. You know, I'm very proud that so many LGBTQ folks end up being the spiritual messengers. Yeah. The preachers for love, the reminders of self-acceptance, the walking metaphors for, I know you were told there's something wrong with you too. There's nothing wrong with you either. There's nothing wrong with me. You know, emblems of self-acceptance. Yeah, it's beautiful. Especially kids. I mean, they're naturally just... I mean, this is this is a beautiful thing about working with young people, which I do often. There is something so healing for me to encounter a person who has not had the innocence, the kindness, the acceptance for LGBTQ-ness. When I work with young people, I am healed because they haven't been convinced yet to give up on acceptance, love, kindness. You know, some have, some are, some are getting ready <laughs> to, mm-hmm. you know, to move away from it. But, but, you know, I went through this sandwich, this Oreo cookie of, I was innocent, lovely, kind, beautiful as a kid. And then that was violently forced out of me. And then I had to reclaim that stuff as an adult. And here we are today. And it's just wonderful to encounter kids whose parents are so lovely and affirming and, and, you know, they grew up in a household where it's wonderful and they're going to camp and they're having fun and they just have the freedom and you can see a chance of it not being taken from them. Yeah. It's so profoundly different than what I was afraid would happen to me as a kid Um, Mm -hmm. and also so profoundly different of what I heard happened from when I work with my adult clients, right? The horror stories and the incredible pain that people experience and have gone through just for being themselves. I love like when I get a like five-year-old in here and they're just so full of it. And then, but it like somewhere in those like teen years when we're so focused on trying to figure out, like as teen years are all about identity development. And as we're trying to figure out who we really are and fit and the difference between kids who are trying to fit and kids who know they belong is night and day, right? And that belonging is an internal thing. That's not an external thing, but it gets taught at home. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I would also label it a spiritual thing. Oh yeah. 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 You, you said the teen years are about that kind of development. I'm 44. I feel like I'm still working on we, it. <laughs> we get stuck. We restart, you know, I think it's important. It re, re-emerges. Yeah. Again and again. Yeah. Yeah. You belong here. That is a profound realization when you, when you, um, it was profound for me when I realized that I was keeping myself from belonging Mm -hmm. at a certain point. 
you know, obviously society has problems with people like us. <laughs> yeah. Um, not going to deny any of that stuff. There's a lot of hate out there. Just look at Texas. <laughs> but if you discover how much you're holding in place, that was just a big profound change for me. I just, just a tiny story on that. You know, I was talking to a spiritual leader at the monastery where I trained and said, you know, it feels like I'm in a tug of war. Like I'm constantly pulling on the rope to in a tug of war to like, I belong here. I, I'm a full human being. And this spiritual leader said to me, are you sure you're not holding both ends of the rope? Oh, (laughs) and I was like, Oh, (laughs) go, (laughs) you know, what are you fighting for and who are you fighting against? And Mm -hmm. so often we're taught to fight ourselves and fight our own spirit. Can I just, I, there's like, my mind is like, I have 17 questions, uh, about this exact, that's just one story. You said, can I just, yes, is the answer. Good. Okay. So one thing that happens for parents a lot when I see kids in my office and we're working on um, kids wanting to transition and move forward uh, with becoming their most authentic selves that I hear from parents, it just seems like they're trying so hard to like push and, and what you described about like, I'm fighting to like be, I'm fighting to exist. I'm fighting to like show people that I, I belong here. Right. And I do think to a certain extent, right the kids that I'm working with probably are holding both ends of their rope and they're not the only ones holding the rope, right? Like I'm not going to by any means put that all on my kids, but I think that parents are expecting the kids to be able to let go of the rope before they have a chance to be themselves. They want the letting go of the rope to mean that they go back to being cisgender and fitting in a box. And <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, so often parents will say things like, we've got through part of transition and I see my kid again. Right. It has nothing to do with the out, the exterior presentation. They see their kid again um, because their kid does let go of the rope because they don't feel like they have to fight. Right. Yeah. Mental health just goes through the roof. Yeah. So that's one Surprisingly. thing. Surprisingly. The mm-hmm. second thing is, how old were you when you had this experience where that very kind spiritual leader dropped that bomb on you? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, in my 20s. Oh. So I'm 44 now, and and I studied Zen for over 20 years. Yeah. And yeah, you know, funny enough, sometimes the kindest things that are dropped on us don't feel kind (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, looking back, absolutely. That was one of the kindest things to ever happen to me in my spiritual practice. Yeah. Because people benefit. If we talk about, um, I don't know of another way to say it. If we talk about hateful people that want to pass laws, that want us to be self-hating, that want... um, that have a lot of agendas, they benefit if they can just push us in the slightest and we'll do the rest of the work, right? Yeah. We, they can just trigger a little something and we're holding that rope and pulling it ourselves and learning how to untangle my side of that dynamic and to be able to 
receive all the hate that I receive and not be phased by it. I mean, that was that was one of the biggest uh, steps, one of the biggest things I ever worked on. To be able to receive hate and not be phased by it. Yeah. And I think I'm I'm going to stick with that with that phrasing. Yeah. To not be phased, because that really is the point. It's not that it doesn't affect you, but it's not going to throw me off mm-hmm. from what I'm doing, yeah. which is love, kindness, self-acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you get a lot of hate there at that. Camp. I do. Letters, um, emails, mm-hmm. all social the, media comments. All the things. <laughs> all of the above. Yeah. Um, and I've actually asked people to start to go through and like screen it for me so I don't have to read it um, because it's a lot. And then I'll tell them, I'll ask them like at the end of the week, just tell me like, were they still there? And then I say, good. That means we still have work to do. That means like we're we're pushing buttons with people and that means that we're doing what we need to do. If, ever, if we weren't getting that, I would think we were actually doing the work wrong. So your question is to your staff, does hate still exist? Yeah. Is it still there? <laughs> does hate still exist, guys? Okay, good. Yep. We'll get back to work. Uh, yeah, I guess that's a silly question, but I think it's important to... That's what we're, we're all working toward is an end to that stuff. You know what I've been thinking about lately is beware of people, I might make a video about this, beware of people who contextualize everything in terms of strength or weakness. Oh, mm-hmm. And of course, it's going on on a global scale right now, mm-hmm. uh-huh. right? You always have to be strong. You can't be weak, right? But even interpersonally, and of course, the, you know, sort of misogyny and femphobia that goes into all that, but just the the binarism, and, you know, you can't have space to have whatever reaction you have. And it has to be either strong or weak. You know, you made me think of that. And and just part of our destiny as non-binary people is to be non-binary in ways that are beyond just your, your gender. Yeah, that's so true. And I don't know about you, but like, I feel like so much of my non-binariness has to do with reflection and really trying to take in and understand and then reflect back, right? That's, and I used my hands, so I should say that out loud so people know what I'm doing. Like, so to take in like (laughs) the different extremes that are coming at me um, and I'll take them in, I'll reflect them on, I'll critically think on them. I might do meditation. Um, They might come up in my therapy sessions, who knows? And to bring it back to like, okay, I can see both of these sides. I can see this the end of the binary and questioning and helping other people question. But that critical thinking aspect of my existence, it feels just like nonstop and so much about who I am as a person that I would say it wraps very much up into my gender identity. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you know, the only thing that ever I that I could ever do that helped or may help like make sense of the whole thing was to transform, transmogrify, uh, alchemize hate into something useful. I use mm-hmm. it to minister to people, right? I use it to demonstrate something, to make a point, to say, you know, this this may be where this person's coming from. Can we all learn something here? That That is the only thing, you know, helping 
the folks who might feel alone and lonely and might also be experiencing hate like that in their lives, you know, that somehow makes the hate that I receive be, it makes me feel better. That's the, the <laughs> I don't know if I could say anything beyond that, but it just makes me feel better and I'm here to feel good. So. Yeah. It's, it's the meaning making, right? Like what do, how do I yeah. take this and, and turn this into something beautiful and good? Cause really otherwise it's chaos and you know, hate tends to flail around a lot. I find when people flail in my office, it's easier to do it when they're in my office. Not so much like in person or in person also pretty easy, but like harder to do online. You do a beautiful job of it online when you get like a hate comment and then I'll see you like, I'm just going to do a video about this and like just break down and like talk to the person who sent it. Um, But when people are flailing, I find that they're really just barely, I mean, it's like drowning, you know? They're just mm-hmm. barely keeping their head above water. And if I can just like touch on the painful emotion that they're running so hard from, it all just sort of like goes collapses in and they're like, I'm sad. I'm like, God, you have every right to be sad. I can understand why you'd be sad. I mean, I hope you're doing that because it feels good to you. Yeah. Oh, Not for them. In other it words. does feel good yeah. to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that, I'm here to heal all the haters of the world. That no, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm definitely <laughs> no, not. not. Um, but if it feels good to you to help a fellow human being, I mean, that kind of compassion is ultra. What we say, extra credit, um, self care. Hi, Marks, on that one. I I think you've really hit on a perfect, um, ooh. Um, a perfect encapsulation of how hate works, that it is there to cover up a wound, Mm -hmm. um, mostly. And it is absolutely a trillion percent unfair. Well, I'm going to go on a small tangent. You know, parents come to me and say, how, what do I do with my, you know, LGBTQ kid? How do I help them? How do I make sure they, nobody hates them? (laughs) <laughs> and it's like yeah. i have some bad news for you yeah <laughs> um that's not the world that we live in so the very best bet is to just be generous unconditional loving overly kind overly loving like at home compensate for how cruel the world is going to be because by the way the world is going to be cruel to your lgbtq kid yeah and that's a fear that parents express to me all the time. Like, I don't want them to be mm-hmm. trans because that means that their life is going to be so awful and hard. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Not that I have a problem with transness. I just don't want them to have to experience the way that the world's going to treat them. Yeah. And beyond that, it's my job as a parent yep, to, to make sure my kid is never dot, mm-hmm. dot, dot. Right? Yeah. Like, what kind of assumption is that? No, your, your, your job as a parent is to be unconditionally loving. Yes. Yeah. I always throw back to um, parents. I'm like, do you ever seen Finding Nemo? You know, the part where like, he's like, I didn't want anything to happen to him. And like, that's the dad saying that about Nemo. And that's, I'm, mm-hmm. It's my job to make sure nothing happens to him. And Dory, the lovable ditzy character, um, is like, why would you want that? why would you want nothing to ever happen to your child? Like, how's that living? And I think that in some ways 
our socialization and certainly American culture. Um, I don't think it's particularly unique to America, right? But this idea that happiness is really where, what we're about, like trying to be happy and achieving happiness is what it's about. And lovely, but just not true, right? Happiness is fleeting and we have to learn to swim and struggle and be grateful and like have gratitude for the moments that exist and learn how to love and love ourselves and love each other and build meaningful, rich, deep connection. Happiness will uh, yeah. float out of that. But struggle will also be present in that as well. Yeah. And you know, what you just made me think of is say you're a kid, a uh, trans kid, and you, you get this in message from your parents that you're supposed to be happy all the time <laughs> mm. and that it means something about them that you're happy all the time. Mm -hmm. Don't, you can't ever tell them anything about any struggle, about any no. question, about anything about yourself, about, you know, you're just yeah. in this corner where you have to pretend. And I hope every parent listening remembers that feeling from their own childhood mm -hmm. and how much the, how difficult it was for that. Yeah. I think the flip side of that too is like, not only do you have to pretend or not only do you, can you not come to me and talk about things that are hard um, mm -hmm. that might demonstrate that you're unhappy because I can't handle that. Um, mm -hmm. But you sure as shit better not do it publicly. Don't put right? that on Facebook. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you put out on, you put on social media that you are depressed. What are people going to think of our family? Of me as your mother, that like I've created a depressed child or that I'm doing something in there to feed mm -hmm. that. You know, I just did a video about airing your family's dirty laundry. Oh, you did? I haven't seen it yet. Because when my book came out, mm -hmm. it was, um, sold a lot of copies and it was the first, um, major publisher penguin mm -hmm. to do a memoir of a non-binary person. So mm -hmm. I, in a sense, I felt all this pressure to tell our story to the world yeah. for the first time. And, um, yeah, my mom said, why did you have to air our family's dirty laundry? And it's that same exact thing. It's that, you know, your experience is not something you own. It's something your parents own and it better be a certain way or your parents are a failure and they're going to feel bad and it's your fault that your parents feel bad and on and on and on and on. Yeah. And it's that shame, you know, that shame is so powerful mm -hmm. and it just keeps us silent. Nobody can know. Oh. Nobody can know. We have to keep it all just swept under the carpet. Another reason why I do videos, right? So that people can see somebody who looks like them. Yes. And, you know, there are folks in media who, who are like us, but I, I just want to add myself to that group to show people some of the best. So the most popular DM I get is, you know, I was going to, I was going to exit. I was going to not be here anymore. And your video saved my life. And I love receiving those. Um, and it says quite a lot about our, our culture that that's the most popular DM I get. It really does. But the second most popular DM I get is, I showed your video to my mom. Mm -hmm. And I said, Mom, this is me. This is like me. And to just receive that from young people and adults, you know, 
that they use my videos as a tool to broaden understanding in their circle is just, um, yeah, I feel so lucky to be doing the work I do. It really, like, I can't think of any other way to describe it. It really is ministry work, right? Like, if we're going to have a church of love, this is what it looks like. I mean, I think the most, so here's here's a tip and a hint for any ministers who are listening, whether they are in a church or out of a church, whether they are TikTokers or they run some of the most beautiful organizations on the planet, mm-hmm. you know, a tip to ministers would be you have to walk the walk, as we've been saying. You can't get you can't get out of not doing the work yourself, mm-hmm. and to me that is the ministry. Well, so one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about also is just about non-binary identity in general. I hear from parents all the time, like um, we talk a lot about re-binary kids, but we haven't done a ton of work on the podcast, at least talking about non-binary identities, mm-hmm. and we've done a fair amount of that already. But I wonder if you were to explain to a parent what it means to be non-binary. What would you say? Well, I mean, there are 23 ways I can answer that question, which is part of the charm. Uh-huh. I think. So one way is I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. And tiny tip for parents, in my opinion, drop identify as just check in with yourself about any language that you use solely for LGBTQ people. Yeah. that you would never use for a cisgender person or yeah. a straight person, right? So, you know, if you're a mom of an LGBTQ kid and you were designated female at birth, assigned female at birth, and you're a woman, you know, you would never say, I identify as a woman, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Uh, so th- it's this othering kind of separating, kind of distancing kind of language. I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. That's one way to answer that question. Mm-hmm. But of course, one thing that I love about non-binary as a word is that it almost begs someone to ask a follow-up. It is the essence of, well, what is that like for you? And now, now we're connecting. Now Mm -hmm. we're in a dialogue. Now we can talk about the things we have in common. The ways that every single human being gets put in a box. Yeah. And the sides of that box chafe. Yeah. To continue our metaphor, sometimes we're holding the walls of the box uh, close to us, thinking yeah. it'll keep us safe. But yeah. I mean, the number of parents that I've worked with over the years who, as their kid comes out and transitions, I hear things like, I'm actually really envious that they get to do this. I never got to do this. you know. Mm. And then my response is, would you like to? It's not too late. <laughs> you can still explore this part of you. Can we talk of... about that? Sure. Sorry, I cut you off. Go I was ahead. just going to say the amount of courage that kids have to to do that work is inspiring to their parents. Mm-hmm. And now we live, I think, in one of the most exciting times to be alive because the pandemic has helped people to question gender, especially gender outside of your Zoom square. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And like how you quote unquote present inside your Zoom square and exactly why <laughs> you're doing that and et cetera, et cetera. And it's just been this, to me, what I've witnessed, this incredible revolution of they, thems, 
she they's, he they's, you know, people who are 72 and saying, wait, I'm a she they. Mm -hmm. And having this beautiful, heartfelt, light bulb, um, brave, inspiring moment. And it really was, it's related somehow, and I'm sure we'll talk about it for years to come, but it is related to being isolated during this these last few years and being at home a lot and being forced to relate and to um, reassess and to do our best to find comfort and knowing that the boxes may not be our source of comfort as much as we thought. Yeah, that's so true. The numbers of kids who are able and free to say that they're trans, um, have that number's really gone up. You know what I think of is left-handedness. Oh, same word. So the number, if you go back and look, the number of quote-unquote, I'm going to phrase this in a specific way. So as left-handedness became more permissible mm-hmm. and schools and parents and et cetera were not fighting to make left-handed kids pretend that they were right-handed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as that stuff started to die away, the number, and this is this is phrased particularly, the number of left-handed kids shot way up, right? Right. But of course, they were always there, right? So you're describing the same phenomenon of, of it's actually just that people are thinking, parents, I'll credit parents, and schools and everybody else, they're just thinking, huh, is it okay to be trans? Maybe it's okay to be trans, you know? And that space gives what is already true a chance to flourish and and uh, find space. Yeah. And I think that people see that, those numbers, and they use them as, or they try and weaponize them to try and invalidate sure. the experience, right? To say like, it's just a fad, it's just a trend. Like all the kids are doing it now. It's not a big deal. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, not all the kids are doing it. <laughs> um, it's really like uh, more than 0.3% of kids are doing it now, but it's it's not all the kids. So let's be careful about that. But um, if they were great, <laughs> right, they should all be so lucky as a chance to sort of explore and figure out who they are. Um they should all get to do that, not just 10% of them. Um, so. Uh, yeah. Amen. Yeah. And I'll tell you something um, about Buddhism, Guan Yin. So people can um, Google Guan Yin, uh, a figure in Buddhism, G-U-A-N space W-I-N, spelled different ways around the world and in different traditions of Buddhism. But this is a figure who... Uh, I'm trying to put it in in the layest of lay terms, a person who will morph into whatever is necessary to help someone else attain um, an understanding of themselves or self-compassion or a step toward nirvana or whatever, you know, metaphoric way to say that same thing. And there are ancient statues. So all the stories throughout Buddhism Guan Yin is a man or a woman or a genderless angel or is old or is young or is whatever is necessary. And there are 20, uh, 2000 year old statues of Guan Yin with a boob with boobs and a mustache. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's just 
folks like us have always been here in every population around the world since ancient times. Because we happen to have grown up in this Western culture that tried to erase our existence from the time, at least the time when we were kids, Mm -hmm. um, people think that it's a trendy new thing, but nah. Well, Jeffrey, I want to be respectful of your time. I've already taken up so much of it. Uh, I really, really, really appreciate you and everything that you're doing. I'll post links to your places where you can buy your book. If you have a preferred place that people buy your book, If people go to my website, the indie bookstore, that is my personal favorite, is linked there. Got it. I will make sure to link that. Thank Thank you you so much for everything you do for the kids that I work with, for the kids that I don't work with, for the parents, for everybody, and for yourself. For kids and, you know, 40-year-old bodies, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you. I left this conversation changed. And I immediately took some of the nuggets into my own sessions with clients. Jeffrey is a highly sought after breakthrough and gender counseling coach, helping straight and LGBTQ people attain a lasting sense of peace and self-compassion. Check them out on any social media platform or head over to their website, jeffreymarsh.com. I'll be sure to put links in the show notes. Big, huge thanks for Jeffrey for doing Campfire today. They'll be back in the future to talk more about self-compassion and non-binary identity. Bigger thanks to you all. I'm humbled by our little community and so proud of the work we're doing together. Thanks for showing up and keeping us going. We'd literally be nothing without you. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us and we want to make sure that anyone who needs one knows there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart.